Good Friday in June here, and for another week, and then resurrection. We know it's coming. And the primary purpose of all of Mark's gospel, his treatise, his letter, is to reveal that the kingdom of God has come, and this kingdom has a king, and it is Jesus. So it has all been leading to this. And his kingdom is antithetical to the kingdoms of the world. And that is good news. That's the way the story began, and it's what we've been seeing throughout. In Mark chapter 1, the first words that Jesus speaks as Mark presents them is in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And this is how we began the series, asking the question, so why is this considered the gospel, the good news, according to Mark? Mark presents it a little differently than some of the other writers. He says the good news is that the kingdom of God has come and Jesus is its king. That's what he's revealing. Because the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God means healing for those who are sick. It means justice for the oppressed. It means freedom for those who are enslaved. It means renewal for all that's decaying, restoration for all that is broken. It means mercy for those who have made mistakes. It means forgiveness for all who have sinned, wisdom for those who long for truth, purpose for all who are languishing, peace for all who have conflict or turmoil, provision for the poor, rest for the weary, power for the oppressed, strength for the weak, to name a few. We've been seeing this throughout in the ways Jesus lives and teaches. A perfect, all-powerful king has come from heaven to earth, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, to establish this kingdom. Some of the other gospel writers consistently proclaim Jesus as king. Mark does so more subtly, as we've gotten used to in a number of the ways, and often ironically, and he'll do so again here in chapter 15. Especially Matthew and John are very consistent in their proclamation of the king has come, the king of the kingdom is here. In Matthew 2, we saw in in Jesus' infancy, in his birth story, which Mark doesn't record, that men from the east, magi from the east, came and proclaimed him king, even from those earliest days. In John chapter 6, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, the people wanted to take him and make him king by force. They already saw in him the potential of the Messiah, the deliverer. In John chapter 12, as John records the triumphal entry, the week before his crucifixion, we know it is on Palm Sunday, very specifically, the crowds cry out, blessed is the king of Israel. The king has come, and it was a, like a royal procession. Jesus, when he's encountering Pilate in John's narrative, says, my kingdom is not of this world, because if it were, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place, essentially proclaiming, my kingdom doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world. So Mark, more subtly, waits 
to pull back the curtain, so to speak, or to tear that veil. Six times in chapter 15, Jesus is proclaimed, announced as king. It's ironic because it's often done in jest or in mockery. None seem to believe it. When in reality, he is not just king of the Jews, king of Israel, he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And he's establishing his kingship, his power, his authority, his rule, his reign in an antithetical, upside-down way, as we've seen throughout the letter, the account. How does Jesus save? How does he establish this kingdom? Through service and through sacrifice, through giving of himself. It's really what he's been doing throughout in life and in ministry, he does now ultimately by laying down his very life, pouring it out for the hurting, for the broken, for the last, for the least, for the sick, for the suffering, for the marginalized and oppressed, for the poor and the weak. He gives of himself and he establishes kingdom in a way that no other kingdom of the world is like. When all other kingdoms and governments often establish their rule and their reign by power or keep it by force or coercion or manipulation or oppression to self-serve, Jesus gives himself away. We even see it here in, in chapter 15, verse 10, that Pilate discerns it's out of envy, rivalry, that the, that the Jews present Jesus because of their own self-centered desire to keep their positions intact. In Jesus has already taught his disciples the contrast of the ways of the kingdom versus the ways of the world. And he said, he said this in Mark chapter 10, 42, in a very famous, powerful declaration. He called all of his followers to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of nations, they lord it over their subjects. They, they rule out of force and power. The great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, you who are walking in the kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be bondservant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came, to establish this kingdom to do so antithetically to the kingdoms of the world by giving of himself his very life that we might be free. This is the upside down kingdom that we've been seeing throughout. Earthly kings and kingdoms established by force and oppression. Jesus establishes by love and service and sacrifice. Earthly kingdoms fade and crumble. His kingdom endures forever. Even in this story, some of the irony is it appears that Jesus is completely powerless at the hands of now Pilate and the, the, the whole Jewish council, the Roman soldiers. And yet Jesus is the one directing the narrative, fulfilling exactly what he said he was coming to fulfill. He is still ruling and reigning just in an antithetical, upside-down way. Mark is very clear to show that it's, it's the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they're all together in this. They had many times where they were divisive and, and against one another and striving for their own power and rule and influence. Here they are together to try to remove Jesus from the scene. They bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor who ruled over Judea under Caesar Tiberius. 
The Roman Empire was so vast, there were many different layers of leadership and governors in places uh, over whole regions, and Pilate was, had been governor for years over Judea. Pilate liked to think of himself as king, and really, in, the, in that day, uh, considering the distance from Rome that Judea was, even though under Roman rule, Pilate had a lot of authority and a lot of power and a lot of leeway and influence to run things how he saw fit. So this is the tactic that the Jewish leaders had to bring Jesus before Pilate, knowing that he had done nothing that would convince Pilate worthy of his crucifixion. And even Pilate says that in the, cha- in the chapter. What has he done to deserve death? But the false accusations that they were bringing against Jesus, no doubt were many, but likely along this theme of he's a, he's a revolutionary. Jesus is proclaiming to, to be a new king, to get look at the crowds he's gathering. He's going to overthrow your government, Pilate, and bring an uprising, an insurrection. This is what he's claimed. Ironically, he never did claim that, and yet he was, right? So often, so much truth is twisted by the work of those who oppose the kingdom of God. Lies to see doubt and uncertainty. So they are ironically presenting Jesus as king, though he truly is king, though he truly will establish a new kingdom, restore and renew bring revolution to God's people, just not in the ways of the world, not in the ways that Pilate would fear and be concerned about. And no doubt, when Jesus stood before him, Pilate saw no threat. And I hear the question he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? You. And I think he goes to present Jesus as as weak and ineffective. Here is your king, you Jews. This seems to be in keeping with the character that we know about Pilate. Jesus' answer to Pilate, you have said so, is really just two words in the Greek, you say. Mark clearly means to link his response to the chief priest that we looked at last week when Jesus answered with two words, to are you the Messiah, are you the blessed one, are you the son, I am, ego, a me, he clearly links to this answer, you say. Now by doing that, I believe he's affirming, just as he was affirming to, to the chief priest's question of his divinity, uh, that he truly was Messiah and king. But by saying it that way, you say, he, he makes Pilate agree to it also. A little bit of a jab. King Jesus is juxtaposed to three earthly kingdoms in this narrative. We've already seen the first. His kingdom and his rule is juxtaposed to the Jewish religious system, Second Temple Judaism that had been in place now for a few hundred years and the temple that had been built by Herod, but the system that had been in place was antithetical to God's kingdom. And Jesus has been renouncing it consistently in the most aggressive way, by cutting off temple worship, by flipping the tables, by driving out those selling. He shut down the work of the temple. 
He cursed the fig tree and said there will be no fruit on this tree. It will be cut off as a metaphor for what was happening in the temple. Jesus' kingdom is established in a totally different way. His is the true kingdom of God, the heart of God. Ironically, the Jewish religious leaders accuse that Jesus is claiming his kingship. Verse 3 and 4, they accused him of many things. Pilate says, have, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus makes no further reply so that Pilate is amazed. This is in keeping with the fulfillment of the scriptures. Isaiah 53, chapter, chapter 53, verse 7, probably the most famous messianic prophecy in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The Apostle Peter would pick up on, on this prophecy, see it fulfilled in Jesus, and proclaim it in a letter that he wrote to the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, we have been healed. Directly quoting from Isaiah. The way that Jesus establishes his kingdom, his power and his authority is antithetical to the ways the Jews were striving to rule and to reign and establish their authority. The ways Jesus was bringing people to God and drawing them in and calling them back to himself was antithetical to the ways that the Jews were mediating a relationship with God. So that's the first juxtaposition of his kingdom. Second, we see Jesus juxtaposed to Pilate. Pilate representing Rome or an earthly kingdom. At that point, the most powerful kingdom or empire in the world. And Pilate represents that power and that influence. Jesus comes to him bound, arrested, accused, defenseless, and yet he's the one who has all authority over Pilate, over Rome, over all kingdoms of all time. We really don't know much about Pilate. A couple of historians, Alexander, um, Josephus being one, and Alexander, they record or Philo, Philo of Alexander, they record that Pilate was heavy-handed, he was cruel, he was manipulative, he was often harsh, vindictive, arrogant, aggressive. We, we know that he was removed later by T Tiberius for deploying the Roman legions against a Samaritan uprising that wasn't apparently that significant of a threat and the way he came against them with the Roman garrison was so aggressive it, un it unsettled the peace in the whole region and so Tiberius removed him then Tiberius died before he could ever stand trial and pa Pontius Pilate simply fades away into history which I think is ironic one that we don't know much about him except really his encounter with Jesus here, though he ruled for decades as a governor and simply just fades into history. 
while Jesus and his kingdom is established and endures forever. Pilate, representing an earthly king and political power, has authority, but it is limited. Jesus has all authority in a supernatural power. This earthly king, as he liked to consider himself, is unstable and reactionary, while King Jesus is unwavering and resolute. This earthly king wants the acclaim and approval of the crowds. We heard that read. Wanting to appease the crowds. It seems that that's what he's most interested in. Jesus wants only the approval and the acclaim of his father. This earthly king uses all means of force and coercion to try to keep peace and maintain his position, and yet he was unable, fading into history. Jesus submits to the cross, yielding his life, earning an eternal position and making true peace possible. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 8 and following. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in that, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Through his service, his sacrifice, his giving of his life, he establishes his rule and reign forever and brings peace. Now, Pilate is amazed that Jesus will not respond to these accusations that I think, I think Pilate knew were false and inconsistent. And Pilate knew he would not be silent if those accusations were, bringing, were being brought against him. And so he's amazed not in awe of Jesus, but amazed that he could go silently. It seems, as you read this narrative, and many have, have simply seen in Pilate a callousness, that he's almost just annoyed and perturbed that he has to deal with this, that he's been interrupted in what he wants to do. A man's life hangs in the balance, and he seems disinterested, because truly he's interested only in himself, and more irony, his life his rule is hanging in the balance in this very moment. Apparently, there's this custom of releasing a prisoner at, the, at this feast. This was the time of the Passover. It's, it's possible that Pilate was the one to begin this custom. And I think, it, I think it lines up with Pilate's desire for a claim from the crowds. That this was the way that he would curry favor and in keeping with the ancient story of the Passover, where the Jews were ultimately rescued and delivered, right? The slaves go free. Pilate releases a prisoner, releases a slave, kind of as a, as maybe even as a mockery, but a jest to the Jews, saying, okay, I'll give you one. And so they cry out for Barabbas. And this is the third juxtaposition of Jesus King to Barabbas. Again, we don't know much about Barabbas, but Barabbas apparently is, is a revolutionary, a violent upriser against the rule of Rome. And he is the one that they want, not Jesus. And this juxtaposition, I think, is so sharp for Mark to present for us. This 
is what the world wants. The world wants someone who will lead and rule and take by force and any means necessary. This is the revolutionary that we flock to, that we call for, that we follow, not Jesus. Not the one who will give and lay down his life, be meek and humble. Pilate announces Jesus twice as the king of the Jews. Maybe he's mocking, but he said, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Do you want this king or Barabbas, who's a murderer and a revolutionary? And they call out for Barabbas. Ironically, Barabbas in Arabic means son of the father. Jesus is the son of the father. But the crowds have turned and are calling for another Messiah, another revolutionary. One they know will fight by force. Well, well, Jesus yields his life. Jesus the king, and Pilate's amazed at this, who has done nothing worthy of death, whereas Barabbas can be condemned, and this is the king that you want? Coming to the end of himself and wanting to appease the crowds and We know from the other Gospels, just wash his hands of this and be done. He hands Jesus over to be crucified. This is the way of the world. Leaders play for the approval and acclamation of the crowds, which is often how they get to their positions of power in the first place. But we put them there. We flock to and follow, elevate and esteem those who will promise victory at whatever cost or freedom or a better future, or however we would name that. And if they use aggression and force and cut down or cut apart their enemies, and even if their weapon is their tongue, as we see today, if we can justify the ends, then all means also can be justified. If the good, in our opinion, outweighs the bad, if it accomplishes our purposes, we will cry out with the crowds, Release them. Bring them into power. Antithetical to the ways of the kingdom. Perhaps the most tragic and sad moment of this whole narrative, and where Mark and I often get choked up just reading through it, is the way that the soldiers treat Jesus. Presenting him as king, but in mockery. Standing in the place of the world that is opposed to the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of King Jesus. They clothed him in a purple cloak, twisted some thorns into a crown, and put it on him, and began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. Those first two words, Hail, King, would have been the same words called out if Caesar himself was to ride into their city. The crowds and the soldiers would cry out in salute, Hail, King. And they bring this title mockingly, but in truth, to the King of Kings. And Jesus receives it as they abuse him and strike him and spit on him. I think the contrast to Jesus' anointing 
just a couple chapters before. Remember when the woman came and anointed him with perfume and wet his feet with her tears, and now these soldiers wet his cheeks with their saliva. The contrast of true worship before Jesus and false worship is palpable. And where are his disciples? And where are we? What rings louder, the mocking jeers of these soldiers or the silence of his disciples and their absence? Everyone and everything in this narrative is proclaiming Jesus as king from the question of Pilate to the jeers of these soldiers to the taunts of the crowds that will pass by. Verse 32, let the Messiah, the king of Israel, come down now so that we may see and believe. We know by the story that nothing would have changed their mind after all they had seen. To the inscription above his head, reading King of the Jews, according to the other accounts, it's written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that all would see, the most common languages of the day, that all nations would know he's the king of all nations. Everything is proclaiming Jesus as king, though in this moment, very few are seeming to believe. A dark hour for human history, perhaps one of the darkest, and as we'll see in the next chapter, true darkness comes upon the earth as the light of the world is extinguished. But this is not just what happens, but what always happens, as we've seen as a recurring theme through the story. The kingdom of God is rejected in favor of the kingdoms of the world. The crowds are so fickle. Seven days before, oh, five days before, because it's not Resurrection Sunday yet, five days before the crowds are proclaiming him as king. Hosanna, save us. Five days later, the crowds are crying out, crucify him. King Jesus rejected in favor of a worldly ruler who will stir up and affirm our selfish or envious desires. Who really wants a king that demands sacrifice, humility, mercy, forgiveness, meekness, where greatness is marked by service? No one really wants this kingdom. So let's keep building our worldly systems. Let's put our faith and hope into them because the next leader will be the one. The next measure or bill we pass or amendment that we draft will be the one. Can't I join in this tragic irony? Do we feel this? Wait. When will we repent and believe the good news? The good news that King Jesus and his kingdom is antithetical to the kingdoms and the rule of this world? Will we turn our hearts and our hopes away from the kingdoms of this world and proclaim Jesus alone as King of kings? Will we lay down our lives to take up true life in the eternal kingdom? The words of the famous martyr Jim Elliot come to mind. He is no fool who gives up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. 
Perhaps the Apostle Paul put it better. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul would have been one, though we don't have any evidence that he was there or nearby, but he would have been one affirming the crucifixion of this king and came to a place to see the incredible sacrifice and love that it was. The king of kings who loves and gives for us, Paul makes it personal, for me. Not just that we would have life someday, but that we would have life today. Beginning today, in his kingdom, repent and believe. Receive this good news. The kingdom is near. The king has come. And he is not like any king that the world has ever known. Will we receive it? Will we walk in it? Will we seek to extend it wherever possible to the best of our ability? When we look into our world and we see the worldly leaders and systems and politics and they leave us longing and aching for more and for better, there is a king who reigns. And it's really good news. May we respond to it as incredible news today by the power of his spirit amongst us. Would you pray with me? And then we'll create space to respond. Father, we come again, for many of us, to this central point of our faith journey. It all comes to this point. That Jesus, you loved so much that you gave all. You yielded to the kingdoms and the power of this world, the darkness and the evil. And it put you to death for a moment in order that you would reign forever, that you would conquer sin and death, that you would take our sin and make a way for true life in your kingdom both now and forever, for all who believe, we come again to this central point. Would you make it new to us in the power of your spirit? More powerful than any words I could ever say, more powerful even than the words of your scriptures, but by you, the true living word, would you make this new for us again? what you have done, and ultimately what you are doing to redeem the world, to call and rescue wayward sinners, the last and the least, the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized and the hurting, the suffering and the sick. You are this king. May we willingly bow before you today and with our lips, may they represent a heart that says, King, rule and reign. We need you again, King Jesus.
Forgive us for any time in any way, individually and collectively, corporately, as a broader church. We have said we can do it on our own. And we have fallen in line with the ways of this world of building systems and structures and powers and authorities that are antithetical to yours. Make us again into your people who exercise your kingdom rule through service and sacrifice, grace and mercy, peace and hope, offering freedom to those that are enslaved. In the power of your spirit, we draw near to you as you draw near to us today. Bless your people. Enrich them, empower them. Renew their sense of your call to walk with you in this world, extending your kingdom for your glory, power, and righteousness. Amen.